I was always using blue cups, which I realized was incredibly unimaginative. So on one of the videos, I saw this red cup come into the picture, and it looked so much nicer, so I, I've changed. Okay, are we ready? Number 282. Forgive us, Don and Michelle, we are in the middle of the story. We're on number 282, which is page 311. I'll read it out loud. The master was in the process of healing me of headaches I'd been having. I referred in the presence of others to my progress in following his advice. To my surprise, he responded rather sternly. You must not talk about these things before others, he said. The divine doesn't work that way. He had been helping me from within, in other words, and not only through the outer suggestions he'd given me. To speak of it before others invited their consciousness into the process and might have diluted his subtle vibrations. I can't say I really, we're going to have another one where I don't really understand it. Okay. Later he told me privately, you will get well provided you don't talk about it. It is in silence that God comes. It's very interesting. Swamiji was extremely open, I mean, to, to, to an extent that would shock others. Uh, he just would talk about many things that happened just who, with whoever happened to be around, including, I mean, I don't mean outside of Ananda, but when we had the Earth Song um, restaurant in Nevada City, he would just talk to whoever happened to be waiting on his table or anything like that. And yet at other times he was absolutely silent about um, just about many things. And this was Master's instruction to him at that time. There's, there's a certain power that builds up when you do not speak about something. And in some way, whatever Master was working with him that power was too subtle to be expressed. I, I recall in uh, the path, Swamiji in the subject, it might have been the subject discipleship, and he talked about sitting. Master often had guests for lunch, and he would, at the Hollywood church, and they would set up a table on what was the dais, and then they would serve lunch to guests. And one of the guests said to him, I understand Dr. Lewis was your first disciple in America. It was a very straightforward question. And Master said, um, that's what they say. Like that. And Swamiji said that Master felt that discipleship was too sacred a subject for dinner table conversation. Isn't that interesting? Considering how freely he talked about it, but it just, if it was brought out to that level of conversation then uh, something powerful would be lost. It's, it's a good thing for us to remember. It's not by any means that I don't feel that people are too talkative. But I myself have had to learn sometimes that if you just hold it inside of yourself, sometimes it gains much more energy than you would think, considering how much I talk and that what I talk about and how often I do but I only do if I feel that it's the right thing to do. Other things just, there, there's power there. I mean, I do understand that very clearly. But Swami was young and he had to learn it. He just thought he could, uh, what the implication here is that 
master had told him to do certain things. And so he was saying, well, I've been, whatever it was, I don't know what it was, drinking water, taking walks, you know, getting more exercise, who knows what it was, because the implication is that Swami was speaking about something more mundane. But then master cautioned him even not to do that, because it was bringing attention to the fact that he, that master was working with him. I mean, you could extrapolate even just in a human way, bring other people's consciousness into it. Perhaps other people would become jealous if they knew that he was working with him. Because he says, bring other people's consciousness in it. That was the phrase that was confusing me. But I can, I can see how that might be an issue. Other people, why is he helping him? Why is he not helping me? Um, just that kind of thought could come. And then those um, dissonant vibrations could make it more complicated. And also just every disciple is treated in an individual way. Even just Master may have been giving him a certain kind of attention. You can just... Swami doesn't speculate about any of those things. But he implies it slightly by saying other people's consciousness. Interesting, isn't it? And it's, it's true even now. I mean, we don't have... Um, we don't have Master with us. But we do have experiences, some of which should be spoken about and some of which should not be. It's worth remembering, because we do have a habit of being very open here. Okay. Um, just so you know, you can ask questions at any point, and we have to, you have to speak into a microphone, though, because so many people hear this on a recording. If you don't, then it's a big blank spot and I get emails. Okay. Um, number 283. In September 1951, looking at the young monks as he reminisced about the old days, he said regretfully, I wish you had all been with me then. So many years had to pass before you came. You know, he laments that in 1948, in August, when he had the great, Master had the great Samadhi, where he had three days with Divine Mother. And he spoke in his voice to her, and then he spoke in his voice as her. And the nuns all recorded everything that he said. Divine Mother said to him, I sent you a few bad ones in the beginning to test you, but now I'm sending you nothing but angels. Isn't that interesting? Swamiji says he thinks he was the first person to come after that samadhi, because it was in August and he came on September 12th of that same year. Um, he, he, he said, I'm sending you angels, and those who smite them I will smite. That actually came up in a slightly humorous way when we were being so intensely persecuted for that long, arduous decade. From time to time, Swami would wonder whether maybe a little smiting was in order, <laughs> since we seem to be the only ones being smited. <laughs> that was sort of the context in which he said it. <laughs> But he wasn't being serious, he was just joking. But uh, he was being serious too. I mean, it was, a, it was a joking way of just thinking about life and what the disciples have to go through. Um, but it's true in many, many, the lives of many great souls that the, some of the most important people don't come till the end. It's just, um, in Ramakrishna's life, that was certainly true. His disciples didn't come till the very last few years. And you would have thought that he would have had them with him the whole time to train. 
I mean, of course, Master had some who came early, almost entirely women. But he said this to the monks. I was just, a friend was reminding me of something that Master said to Durga Mata, which is, if only uh, Walter, that's what he called Kriyananda, if only Walter had come earlier, we would have attracted millions, he said. But how could he lament something like that? Because it was meant to be, if Walter had come earlier, we wouldn't all be sitting here because he wouldn't have lived long enough to create this. But I think he was also just making a comment about um, what his future potential would be. But, but Master did struggle. He didn't really have, and most of the teachers he gave his energy to betrayed him in the end. Dhirananda and Brahmachari Narod, the ones that he, he relied upon to help him, the men. And um, Swamiji said that was one of the reasons he had so much trouble later is because the women remained faithful and the men um, didn't. And so the women were, in SRF, were inclined to believe that men would betray Master rather than inclined to believe that men would be faithful. And men betrayed Master by becoming enamored of their own potential rather than of their potential to be disciples. So they were always on the lookout for any sign of any man beginning to become uh, capable of having a mission of his own is how they saw it and they didn't understand how a man could be dynamic in the service of the work and still be absolutely loyal to the guru they just didn't understand it Swami got in trouble when he was in India because he advertised himself rather than advertising himself as a representative of Dayamata I mean he actually was criticized for that Swami said, they don't know Dayamata, I'm the one who's speaking. He said, I can introduce them to her afterwards, but they want to know who's speaking. But the people who were criticizing him had no idea at all how a public work is created. And it, uh, it's just, it's very complicated, but it all had to be the way it was meant to be. But then Master laments it, if only you had come earlier. But it wasn't meant to be. Swami himself said, that Master, being the avatar, had to set the energy completely. I think he says that elsewhere in this book. That Master had to set the vibration for absolutely everything because water never flows higher than its source. And so he had to just put the power in the ether. And it wasn't so much that he established things because he didn't really establish nearly as much as Swami did afterwards. But he, but he set the vibration for everything. That's the story that Swami tells either in here or in the path where he said to Master, I have some ideas for how to develop the garden. And Master said, ask Anandamata, she knows my will for the garden. And Swami was honest enough to say, it annoyed him. Couldn't he have his own opinions about anything, not even the plants to put in the garden? But then Swami said, when he meditated on it deeper, he understood. And Swamiji said about himself that by the time he was doing his work, he could allow, he, Swami still held things very strongly, but he said he could allow other people's ideas into the story a lot more than Master because the power was set by Master. So he distributed to all of us more responsibility really than Master ever distributed to them. It's interesting, isn't it? Next generation down. Swamiji still um, defined the work very powerfully, really up until the day he died. But then, but that by then he'd given 
tremendous responsibility to people, so it wasn't so hard. Okay, number 284. There was a devotee, the master said, who sat before the image of his guru, casting flowers onto it. All of a sudden, his concentration became interiorized, and he beheld within himself the whole universe. His body was motionless, but his consciousness had expanded to infinity. Later he cried, Ah, I was putting flowers on the image of someone else, and now I see that I, untouched by the body, am the sustainer of the universe. I bow to myself. And he began casting flowers onto his own head. What a story. Master goes on. My master it was who first told me that story, he continued. Oh, when I heard it, I was so thrilled, I went into samadhi. I was reading in uh, something out of the Bible. It was a quote from the Bible, and it, it said, essentially, it was one of the letters, probably from Paul, It said, when you dedicate yourself to Jesus, your very body belongs to Jesus. It's a holy temple, and it belongs to God. I mean, he was, the context of that was probably um, encouraging purity of thought, purity of action in one form or another. But it, it made me think, as I think a lot these days, about what it would be like to have no inclination for the world. Just to have no inclination for the world. I think about young girls who go into a monastery at a very young age, or young um, men, usually men, sometimes women, who leave home at an early age in India to just go off and find Himalayan masters. You know, people who end up in the Himalayas and being disciples of great souls from the age of 10, 12. Sri Yukteswar had some young boys in the ashram that he was training. Just imagine having it so clear in your consciousness it would have to be at the end of one incarnation that even from childhood you just look at the world and you just know it's not for you. And it's not a question of sowing some wild oats or anything like that. It just, the thought never comes to you. You know, sexuality never arises, the desire for companionship, for wealth, for comfort, all of the things that all of us try to combine so much with our spiritual lives. And it's not wrong. I mean, that's how Master and Swami trained us. But it's worth contemplating what would it feel like to, to, not, to not have to discipline yourself, but just to be completely disinclined. Vairagya, just be born with vairagya, which is looking at this world and not being interested in it. And you know, that's the, um, the way we have to move. That's what this story is about, to be able to actually really see that there is no difference between myself and the divine. One has to be so detached from everything that we call ourselves. That's why he said... I, you know, I, I worship God in this body because he, there was no self to contradict that. It's, it's wonderful. That's why Swami wrote this book for us, so that we can 
This, this was all that we were talking about last week. So we can recognize how far we really have to go. In the path, I believe it's the chapter on discipleship, Swamiji talks about very few disciples realized the magnitude of the revolution to which the guru was calling them. You know, they just saw him as helpful. You know, we try to take, we, we, we have our own world and we try to bring the spiritual life into the world that we're in. And that, of course, is better than not doing that. And it, everybody has to go, we all have to go, as I've said so many times, stage by stage from where we are to that fulfillment. You can't, that was what last week was all about. You can't skip any of those parts. But it's extremely important, and this is the fine line we have to walk, to actually understand the distance between our realization and our potential realization and really not try to diminish that distance and at the same time feel optimistic and encouraged <laughs> and not, not be, just not in any way feel that there's a judgment there, but there's such a temptation to lower the top of the mountain so we'll feel closer to the top. But when you hear something like this, you know, this isn't an affectation on the part of this yogi. He just suddenly saw that there was no difference between the image he worshipped and himself. It was a perception. I know when I've talked about Swami Kriyananda, I, I tell a few stories like this in the s- stories of Swami Kriyananda. Last, uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking about listening to my own audiobook of Loved and Protected, and now I'm listening to my own audiobook of stories of Swami Kriyananda, because the stories are so good. And there's several stories in there, I realize, where I thought Swamiji had a very good attitude or a tremendous amount of self-control in terms of the way he related to the world. And then I came to understand that there was no discipline involved. It was just simply the way he saw things. And it was a state of consciousness that caused a certain perception. And, and that was entirely different than my perceiving it as a positive way to be and therefore um, affirming it, disciplining myself, even if it's not that difficult, but it's still, it's a conscious choice on my part to behave in a certain way instead of just simply the way one sees things. That was specifically when I grew old enough to be working with people who were as much younger than me as I was to Swami, which of course was impossible when I was 24 because those people would have been two years old. (laughs) But by the time I was 46, I could have 22 years of distance and by the time I am now, I know many people, the gap is there, it's the same gap and more. And when I had to work or had the fun of working with people who are generationally different, and I realized the temptation, which I don't feel now, but I did it first, to want to impose my age and experience on people and dismiss their callow youth, uh, 
I remembered that in all the years I worked with Swamiji, he never once referred to my age. And God knows I expressed it. So it certainly wasn't that I didn't sorely provoke him. At one point, you know, after some 30 years, he said, he just said something about I would have, when he wanted to use the name Donald Walters instead of the name Kriyananda, because he thought, it, Kriyananda was an obstacle to people accepting some of what he had to offer. I didn't like it. I thought it was a poor idea. And he said, I would have done it much earlier, but Asha constantly thwarted me. Yeah, that was... And uh, so I thought about that, and the next morning he was staying in our house, and the next morning I said, uh, I think I often thwarted you, didn't I? He said, Yes. <laughs> Without the slightest, you know, he just didn't give me anything. It was just, yes. I said, I think I owe you an apology, don't I? He said, yes. <laughs> and what can I say? Yeah, here, there you are. Uh-huh. Is it, is it, no. um, Nava, is it turned on? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm not... I'm new to your community. I'm, I'm new to your community. So what was your relationship? I don't know what your what relationship was? was with... Uh, Swami Kriyananda? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, he was 42 and I was 24 when I moved to Ananda Village, which is our rural community up near Grass Valley, which started in 1969. I met Swami Kriyananda when I was 22, um, 22 and a half, here at Stanford University when he was still living in San Francisco in 1969. And from that point when I met him, I was devoted. And when I moved, and then I I worked with him closely for a while. I was his secretary and then all the years of his life. And he died in 2013. I was always in constant touch with him. I didn't, after the first 16 years, I didn't live where he lived. But he often came to visit us and and between email and telephone and letters and travel, you know, we were, I was always there. Okay? Thank you. Sir, that was what worth asking. But in any case, uh, let's see. Oh, yes, I was saying about that, that he, he uh, accepted my global apology. So when I was working with people whose the gap in age was the same or greater, and I realized that, I thanked him for it. When the next time I saw him, I said, Swamiji, I... I just tell you how much I appreciate, I mean, by that time I was maybe in my 60s, or at least in my 50s, how much I appreciate that you never made reference to my youth or inexperience. I thought it was such a a supportive gesture. You know, he he made me feel like an equal, uh, which was, I wasn't, (laughs) to put it mildly. But... uh, He accepted my comment very gracefully, but I could sense that there was some other reality by the way he responded. And then he just said, I never noticed. Which was, then it just takes it to another level. He said, I never noticed. He said, age is is such an insignificant part of a person's consciousness. He said, "I, I never notice how old people are. 
He said, I relate to their consciousness and I relate appropriately. He didn't say that, but I know that he does. Even to children, he relates appropriately. He said, but I never think of them. You know, I'm a little girl here when he came once to visit our school. There was a little girl who was so interested in him because he seemed like her grandfather, but he also didn't seem at all like her grandfather. And she just kept walking closer and closer to him. And finally, she was like, right like this. And she just said... How old are you anyway? Just like that. And he said, well, I'll put it like this. When I was a little boy, you were an old woman. (laughs) And she kind of looked like that for a minute. Ah, then she got it. (laughs) And she was quite satisfied. But it's true. When he was a little boy, she was an old woman. So the fact that she's a little girl now and he's an old man, like, which is, what's the reality? There's no reality to either of them. They're just souls on a journey. So he just said to me, I never noticed. And that was, when I, that, that was when I really realized that I can be respectful, but I notice. He just didn't notice. He just saw consciousness. He didn't see the physical body. I mean, that's, it's, there's so many things that we have to work with. Master has this in, one, in several of his whispers. He refers to this same idea, which is you know, not merely don't just teach me to discipline, but teach me to actually see it like this. And that's, that's a higher prayer. You know, it's, it's, not enough, it's not enough to be good because it is your habit to be good, is how he put it. He said, what you need to have is have no, it, that it's not even a desire to be good. It's simply the way that we are. And that's what I was talking about, about just imagine having such a developed level of vairagya that it just doesn't cross your mind to veer off uh, a straight path. So this is to be devoutly hoped for if we do have another body that will remember that. We were talking this morning just casually about the incredibly advanced consciousness even of little children. And uh, Karen Gamow was talking about her father remembering when he was small enough to be fed with a spoon and how his mother allowed food to accumulate around his mouth and just how repelled he was by how undignified it was to have to sit there with this food on his face that his mother didn't take off. I mean, he could remember all that. I'll just tell you all because it's so funny. One of our friends who is, uh, has written a number of cookbooks and is really one of the best cooks that I know, uh, Nancy Mayer is her name, Netri is what we call her, and you should buy her cookbooks, those of you who are seeing this online. Her cookbooks are superb. When she was small enough to be fed with a spoon, her mother gave her some peas and carrots together on the spoon. And her sense of taste was so highly developed, she put the peas in one cheek and the carrots in the other and then pushed the carrots out. (laughs) And she said her mother found it so charming that when her friends would come over, she would feed her peas and carrots just so she could... (laughs) And she would always do it. But you know, that's how young are you? But she could already discern what she liked, what she didn't like, and she grew up with this extraordinary capacity. Well, this capacity to tell the difference. Who, you know, everybody, we're not young, we're just uh, uh, uncivilized. We're just from a foreign land. That's what someone was saying this morning, too. Children are like from a culture that isn't the same as this one, where the language and the customs are different. And they have to figure everything out. And that's our job, is to teach them. But we should never underestimate them. 
All right. Number 285. The master, gazing jocularly at Leo Cox, remarked, look at this, look at Leo, how fat he is becoming, like a real Bengal babu. Pretty soon he will be like Trilanga Swami with the belly in three steps. <laughs> master was very robust among the men. Swami doesn't include everything, but he said Master was quite frank speaking when he was just alone with the men. He wasn't like that with the women. I suspect he wasn't merely teasing Leo, but hinting at his need to lose weight and not eat so much. There was no deep teaching here, of course, but it sparked another thought in me. Sir, I said, thinking back to an earlier conversation we'd had, and remembering from the autobiography that he'd said, that Hindus held Trilangaswami in great reverence. Was Trilangaswami an avatar? He was a great master, he replied, though not an avatar. An avatar comes with a special mission. Trilanga was a jivan mukta, which means freed while living. In that state, one is fully self-realized, but not yet completely free from all past karma. So shades of meaning that are uh, worth contemplating, but not always so clear to us. One day, during a Kriya Yoga initiation, he told us, through the practice of Kriya, you should hope to become at least Jivan Mukta in this lifetime. Jivan Muktas in this lifetime. During another Kriya initiation, I believe it was in 1949, when Swamiji was himself present, he said also, of those present, there will be a few siddhas and quite a few jivan muktas. A siddha, or perfected being, has attained full liberation. So Amiji goes into all of these nuanced shades in his comment, a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And in his commentary on the Gita, he gives instructions for how jivan muktas can work out their karma. And he talks about how you can go be alone in a cave and he gives very, I can't remember the detailed instructions because they weren't relevant, about how you how envision and how you can meditate and how you can see the karma that's remaining and you can dissolve it only by meditation. That was the paragraph when I read it, which was extremely interesting. I said to Swamiji, this is not going to apply to very many of your readers. And his response, in the most matter-of-fact way, he said, that's true, those for whom it is relevant will find it very useful. It's just like, he, you know, Master was writing and Swami was writing on Master's behalf um, for people at a very high stage of development. It's my belief that Swami was a Jivan Mukta. It's very hard to understand that he would be anything else. And one of the things he said specifically made me feel this because Master said he would be liberated in this lifetime. And so if he's going to be liberated in this lifetime, that means you have to start um, somewhere quite far along. And one of the things that was very interesting, and this is, well, I'll finish this in a moment. Um, in Swamiji's life, Taramata was his nemesis, and she was the one who engineered his dismissal from SRF, which, of course, was an essential reality for the work that he had to do for Master, but at the time was great, great difficulty and caused Swamiji a great deal of heartache. Um, it wasn't just Tara, but especially Dayamata was the person that Swamiji felt the closest to 
spiritually in the whole world and from the time he was expelled to the end of his life she was unrelentingly antagonistic toward him and that was a hard very hard for him and it and then later um i sometime in the 80s or maybe even in the 90s the date escapes me at the moment this man came to see swami kriyananda from new york city and he came all the way to to ananda village in california and he ins- insisted that he needed to see kriyananda even though visitors as a rule could not just come in and meet with him it wasn't impossible but it wasn't common but haridas at a, who was on the retreat staff had the intuition to realize that there was something here so he called swamiji and said essentially recommended that this, you should see him the man came in to see swami and told him that he had a message from taramata from the other side and that he said that taramata wanted to apologize to him that in this lifetime she was acting from experiences that had happened centuries before in which after the guru died swami kriyananda had in fact split the ashram and taken half the ashram away and tara was his younger brother in that lifetime and was greatly disillusioned by what she saw as a betrayal and she said that she could see now that she imposed on this incarnation that reality and could never see swami for what he was and then he she had instructed this total stranger to embrace swami ji on taramata's behalf swami prints all of this at the end of his book a place called ananda and he wouldn't have printed it if he didn't feel there was validity to it but the sense that's so fascinating there is swami ji says he believes this is true because other uh sources and his own intuition have tell tells him that he had to learn to be loyal he in this incarnation he had long since learned to be loyal but it was something he had to learn but he says i saved the karma for this incarnation when it would be useful right and i i've just i contemplated that a lot and i thought there were a lot of things that happened in this incarnation that really looked like finishing a lot of old business and he never said that about anything else but i became quite curious and i actually i was uh, in i saw him in march of 2013 and uh i was going to go with him to romania at the beginning of june and i had resolved that i was going to talk to him about this at greater length but he died in april so it was very interesting i never got to ask him and i suspect he would have answered me but i just had to sort of think it out on my own that he was cleaning up all the any karma that was left over which is what a jivan mukta does the realization i don't know how to really think about these things but the full god realization is there but some of the karma from the past has not fully been finished what does that mean this is where he instructs the yogi to meditate and dissolve all the karma in meditation but swami ji lived such an active life and so many different things happened so many people came through so many uh, attacks and victories both you know it's like it it looks like a lifetime in which everything was being finished and so and much of it was useful in very peculiar ways it created 
karma for us to live through, who knows. Um, but a siddha is finished completely. And so Master, sitting there, saying in that kriya, there will be a few siddhas and quite a few jivan muktas. Swami actually says, when I think about the people in the room, you know, I feel he must have been referring to me also. Because he said they're just, Rajasi wasn't there, Gyanamata wasn't there. So who else from other things that Master said? Because Master told him that he would be a siddha, in fact. So, and also the fact that Swami always urged us, he said, to try to become Jivan Muktas. I don't think he would say that unless it was something he had himself already. Anyway, I don't feel like I have to prove these points. These are just things I've been thinking about. Yes? Uh, Swami's also said that uh, there are, it's not uncommon, apparently, for a Jivan Mukta to intentionally defer the dissolution of his karma. Right. That's exactly right. I saved it until... It would be useful, but you have to have a great deal of control over your destiny to not just have it kind of sweep in any old time it wants to. <laughs> I don't feel like I've saved anything. I feel like it's just hit me in the back of the head when it jolly well wanted to. <laughs> I've had no control over it. <laughs> oh, well, very interesting, isn't it? Okay. Any other comments or questions? So where are we? We just did 285. Let me see what else. Oh, and also about Trilanga Swami. I just wanted to go back to Trilanga Swami for a minute. You know, this question of avatar, and I know the other day on Sunday I was lamenting the fact that avatars, mo- many of the Indian words, the, well, the more the words are incorporated into English, the less they're understood. But avatar has really been the worst of all because it's completely assumed a different meaning, which is just awful. But... Uh, Avatar, that, that just that simple statement that an avatar comes with a world-changing mission, because that is the whole point. You can, other, I mean, otherwise, why would they come back? They have to come back with a certain kind of power. So try, but you can be a Jivan Mukta, and this is what Swami writes in the in various other places. That you, you have to really get it clear that it, they're all in the same state of consciousness, and I don't know what, I don't understand. But, you know, to say Trilanga was merely a Jivan Mukta is not in any way to say that he was less God-conscious. Master said, sometimes a Jivan Mukta, because Swami asked him this, I think it's in the path. He says, Master says that a Jivan Mukta could dissolve the karma at any point he chose, he wants to. He has the power to dissolve the karma, but sometimes a Jivan Mukta will let it keep running because it gives them a reason to keep coming back. So that's where, where he put Trilanga Swami. We, um, when we would go on the pilgrimage tours that we used to lead and on the pilgrimage tours that people still take, in Var- when you go to Varanasi, you go to Trilanga Swami's ashram and they have this statue of him with this great big belly Sometimes they have a little cloth over the belly and then sometimes the cloth is pulled up so you can see his belly. It's a statue. <laughs> and uh, then there's a, a place sort of underground where was his meditation room and it's, it's all extremely powerful. Whoever he was, you can just feel it. It just permeates that place. It's really wonderful. So there's, you know, these are the vibrations that remain. Quite impressive. Did you have a comment or no? Just, uh, 
I don't know that it has anything to do with consciousness, but it is said that the um, the avatar has many, much, much more power to save people than the Jivan Mukta. That's what they say, yeah. because his power is unlimited. Yeah, I don't, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I just can't tell the difference. That has to do, that discussion has to do with the fact that sometimes people claim to be in tune with the guru but feel justified in ignoring his disciples because if you still have karma, how can you teach me? This was an issue when Swami was alive. I don't know. I'm sure that Diamata faced it. I'm sure everybody who doesn't claim to be self-realized. And But Master says several places in here, you know, you just can't be close to the Guru without also being close to the disciples. I mean, not every disciple, but those who are in tune with the Master that we're trying to follow invariably have something to give us. And the people who recognize that you can learn who have the humility to recognize that you can learn from many sources, um, generally speaking, progress more. And the people who realize that I need company and I need help generally progress more than those who steadfastly insist that no one can guide me at all. I know uh, I, was in, I was listening to the book of stories about Kriyananda and Jayadev, who's a very... Uh, He's very central to the work in Assisi. He's a German from Germany. And he talked about he just always had been such a, a, a feisty, rebellious young man. And when he came to, to Ananda, he was willing to let the guru tell him what to do. And maybe God, but certainly nobody else. And that was just his attitude. And he was ready for a fight. And uh, only... Swamiji managed to win him. That's the story that's told there. But he was just like, nobody, nobody's going to be the boss of me, is how he put it. And that's just, a, it's a common attitude. But he was won over by Swami's humility, basically, and his kindness. So, it's a good story. So, ready? Let's see. Actually, we're a couple of minutes early, but why don't we take a little break now? And then we'll go on to the next one. Okay? So, we'll do number 287, no, 286. Boone, Daniel Boone, one of the monks there, had caused someone considerable inconvenience by revealing, in answer to a question, something that hadn't needed to be said. He was scolded for doing so and tried to justify himself by saying, I only wanted to be honest. That's why I told the truth. I have no idea what this incident is. Sometimes I know what's behind this one, but I don't know what this one was at all. The matter was later reported to the master, who commented indignantly, Supposing someone came to me with the Holy Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, and every great scripture in the world and said to me, if I tell you something, will you swear on these sacred books never to repeat it to anyone what I've said? And supposing I replied in good faith, yes, yes, I promise. And then, supposing further, he told me, I have put a rattlesnake in M's bed. What would I do? It would have been wrong on my part to promise. But should I then compound that mistake by saying, oh dear, I have promised, now I must say nothing? 
Which is worse, to break a promise or to let someone be killed when I am in a position to save him? Of course I would speak out. Imagine that boy, Master called all the men boys, imagine that boy causing serious trouble, then trying to justify himself by saying he only wanted to tell the truth. Truth is always beneficial. Boone wasn't telling the truth, for what he did resulted in harm. What he stated was a fact only, not a truth. He need not have answered at all. It would have been far better for him to say nothing. If he needed to speak, however, it would have been better at least to equivocate than to let someone be hurt as a consequence. It's quite a strong... He really tells him, doesn't he? Wow. You can only imagine he revealed something. I don't know what, it, what he might have said, but he might have, it was obviously some facts probably about someone else or some situation in the ashram that just shouldn't have been talked about. And it was interesting because I was in a position, when I, especially when I worked as Swami's secretary, but actually for all the time I worked with him, um, I remember the first time it happened. Somebody came to me and they would, were going to confide something in me only if I promised not to tell Swami. So I'm not quite sure what I said. I may have said that I wouldn't. And then, of course, as soon as I heard it, I knew that Swami needed to know. So I said to him, Swami, they wanted me to promise not to tell you, but I think that I should tell you. Of course you should tell me. He said, just like that. <laughs> He said, I always told Master. I said, they, they, the promise that they were asking of me was based on the idea that somehow, you know, it wouldn't be helpful for you to know. And so I feel like their whole premise was false. They have a false idea of Swamiji. And when I was talking to him, of course it would be useful. Swami would, will handle the information with utmost discretion and know exactly how to respond. But of course I had to tell him. So I always, that was my policy, always. I just, whatever it was, I always told him whether people asked me to or wanted me to or not. And on many occasions when I knew someone was coming to him to talk to him about something, I would call him in advance. So-and-so is coming up to see you, sir, and this is the issue. And it was always helpful because it gave him a chance to reflect on it and, you know, be prepared and not have to be surprised. And uh, I don't, I don't know the extent that people knew that I did that. But it just seemed to me like it was beneficial truth. And, and that's really how we have to live. And the same goes with um, frankness is not the same as truth-telling. That's what he was trying to get across. The truth-telling, to be loyal to the truth is to be loyal to God's plan and to be helpful to that plan, which is really what we're trying to do. Oftentimes... We become either too intellectual or too arrogant or too divorced from our hearts or just too many different things. And, you know, Master was also annoyed with Boone because rather than being contrite, he tried to explain and justify what he'd done, which is not a good thing for the devotee. Once, you know, if you've been outed for being wrong, it's best to try to understand why you were wrong, not to try to explain why you were right. Um, it, again, in one of the stories in the book there, there was a man who got himself in a, a great deal of hot water. 
And he was about to make some pretty serious decisions that would have had pretty catastrophic implications. So I called Swami, <laughs> said, Swami, it's, this is beyond me. I can't, I can't deal with this. So Swamiji called the man involved and was trying to be very supportive, was very supportive. And he said, look, just don't make any decisions until we have a chance to talk. Because Swami was at the village and we were here. Don't make any decisions till we have a chance to talk. And so the man said rather belligerently, all right, I'll come up and see you, but it's going to take at least a half an hour for me to explain to you what's going on. This is a very complicated situation. Because sometimes you would start telling Swamiji what was going on and he would just cut right through and give you his answer before he allowed you to work yourself up into a frenzy with all of your point of view. <laughs> and... and uh, so Swami said, of course, anything you want, I'll give you know, as much time as you need, whatever. He was, Swamiji was just determined to keep this guy from his catastrophic delusions. And then afterwards, though, when I talked to Swami, he said, truth can be told in a minute. Self-justification, that takes a long time. <laughs> Which is just really the truth of it, Exactly. But self-justification is whenever one hears oneself explaining why I did it. I mean, sometimes there really is an explanation of why I did it. But a lot of times you should listen really carefully, especially when you've composed a really long email explaining why I did it and why anybody in the same circumstances would have done just what I did. Yeah, you have to just pause for a second and ask yourself, What's really going on here? I used to write Swami rather long self-justifying letters, which he never answered. <laughs> I didn't realize it. I thought I was just explaining things to him. I still do. Uh, not to him, but I, on occasion I write letters that are much too long because I just get lost in the facts and I miss the truth. But he says it's at least equivocate than to let someone be hurt as a consequence. Swamiji was so careful. He was so much more careful than anyone I've ever known. He just, far from confronting people and explaining to them, he never argued, he never tried to persuade. If you were receptive, he would talk to you. But as soon as you began to resist, he would just stop. Because if he had to badger down your defenses in order to get you to see something, you were going to see it anyway. You were just going to have your defenses badgered down and then when you were left on your own, you would re reassert them. Even worse, because you would then be perceiving Swamiji as someone who would attack you. And instead of being receptive, you would become leery. I mean, he rarely... I mean, he, he did at times speak forcefully. Um, but he was very selective in doing that. But he got, he got his point across in other ways. Partly, and this is very important, he was, a, he was an absolute truth-teller. I mean, he would be silent if he needed to be. But if he spoke, if we spoke, he never wasted words. And so whenever he said anything, it had, it had the full potency of his consciousness behind it. He never just rambled on and said more than he needed. I mean, often he'll just, he would just say something once. But that once had all the energy that there needed to be behind it. So you, you didn't need a lot of words from him. You, you, you could get the point. Something small was enough. 
I mean, it was a strange thing because you would, you would have the feeling that there was this whole book behind it, which there actually was, because sometimes he would wait a long time. At the end of his life, he said he was more, he had to be more direct. He said earlier he could just say, tell you a little and then wait a few years and then tell you a little more. But at the end of his life, he didn't have enough time. He, he said something, I think it was to Lakshman once, that was just uncharacteristically blunt and a little harsh. And then afterwards he said, I, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. He said, I just don't have the time to be as careful as I used to be. It was just as simple as that. And of course, Lakshman was perfectly happy to be corrected. But it was interesting. That, you know, you think of a teacher as being egoic. <laughs> it just wasn't so. All right. Number 287. A few of us were working on the grounds at Master's Desert Retreat. One afternoon, the Master came out and shoveled alongside us. It was a hot day, and seeing him pant a little, I commented pleasantly, hot work. He looked at me a little sternly and said, it is good work. Somebody just lets that story stand, but I think Master didn't ever like them to be negative in any respect. You know, it's really, it's an interesting discipline never to complain, never to criticize, never to complain. It's not one that most of us fall into naturally, but Master was, Swami has told that story in other contexts in that way, that Master didn't want the thought to grow in their mind at all. You know, thoughts are so powerful, and we very, very casually just pollute our thoughts on a very casual basis. People are very careful with their diet, but they'll just pollute their mind. We pollute our minds with just letting any kind of drivel sort of go through. Plus, words have power. And you start down a, a, a pathway of this is hot, this is hard, and then pretty soon it is hot and it is hard, and you've lost track. We don't even know that we've created that thought ourselves. It's very interesting how many... I was just talking to someone. This is, this is slightly off this, but it's similar. Um, you know, I've been doing all this with costumes now for quite a few years, and I just play with all of this. This is my little tiny piece of art. And I was saying to someone that I never thought, I never grew up with any sense of myself as having even good taste, what to speak of being able to visualize anything artistic ever. Partly because I wasn't much of a girl, so I never, I mean clothes and things like that, I never understood clothes or fashion. When I was, after I got to Ananda, there was a woman there who, who just, she just had impeccable taste. And I, I, w- I would go out to stores with her and I would have her tell me why, why something was beautiful and something else wasn't. I just really, I just didn't know what made something attractive and she trained me. But I often said that I, I often articulated my own limitation in terms of visual. I don't have much visual sense. And then I was put in charge of the publications business during the time that Swami was, during the time we published The Path the first edition of The Path, 1977. And there was another woman there who, who liked to have influence over what was going on. And she would always tell me that I really didn't have a voice because after all, I didn't have a very good artistic sense. And I realized that 
That information came from me. <laughs> that there was no other source for it except my own self-deprecation. But I actually realized, and that was the first time I realized, when it was looking at printed matter and advertising and things like that, that I could actually tell quite well what design was good and what wasn't. I, at that point, I couldn't have created anything, but I could, I could immediately tell what worked. And it was a very interesting thing for me to realize how much we can create a reality around us merely by what we say, which may or may not have any relationship to what's actually true. It was the first time I saw it. I had a whole reputation and a whole response to life that was always pushing that side aside until other people would tell me that, that something was good and I would look at it and I knew it wasn't. And I knew what was wrong with it and I knew how to fix it. And it, so I gradually just shut up. I stopped saying I didn't know. And I started just making suggestions, <laughs> which more conventionally artistic people recognized as good ones, partly because I knew how to communicate so I could tell what would communicate. But then gradually this whole other side of myself opened up and I you know, began to see it. But words, have to, you have to really pay attention to what you're saying, especially self-definition words. And even positive words are not so good because then you still put yourself in a box of this is the, I am the kind of person who and this is what I can do and this is what I can't do. Whereas why would we do that? You know? It's the I can't but master can. That's what Swamiji would always tell us in all the, of his accomplishments. I can't do it but master can through me. That's the only statement we should ever make. All right. Number 288. The Master remarked once to Dr. Lewis, For everyone who has crossed my path in this life, there has been a reason. Now think about that. Master traveled back and forth across the country. He gave lectures where thousands of people came. He, he lived in hotels. He lived in cities. He... And apparently in Los Angeles, he would go down to the Bowery District, Swami said, where the bars were, and he would just walk on the sidewalk, you know, there. Everyone who crossed my path, there was a reason. It's just, it's a, just a stunning thought. And Swamiji was very pleased that his mother met Master and his favorite cousins, his two cousins met Master. It was just like, there's the, there's the, marvelous um, evidence in the readings of Edgar Cayce who, who did all those past life regressions in the 40s, maybe in the 50s too, I don't know when he died. And they were all very carefully documented and there's a huge library of all his readings and cross-referenced in countless ways. But one of the consistent things was that many people who came, he himself was devoted to Jesus. He was a very, uh, he, he, he would sort of go into a trance when he'd do these readings. But the fact is he was a very saintly and pure man himself. So it wasn't really that he was a medium because he was also very saintly. So it was just some kind of a gift that he had. And very often he would refer, he would tell people that they had been on the street when Jesus came by. And there's a whole collection. I've never read this. I just, I've never read the collection. I've just read about it. 
of, of the, they, they pulled out all the incarnations that were, that were referenced in which he spoke about Jesus and sort of collected all this. But many of the people who had some connection with Jesus, it was just a passing connection. You know, it wasn't as if you were St. Thomas, you were St. Paul, you were St. Simeon or anything like that. It was just, you were on the street and he went by. But the powerful part of that is that very often Edgar Cayce would tell them that everything that's happened to you since has been defined because of that contact. And that's just, it's, it's, an, it, it's that uh, statement one moment in the company of a saint can be your raft over the ocean of delusion. I mean, that just sounds like poetry, but Casey was talking about it, and here's Master saying it. No one crossed my path except that there was a reason. Now, um, Master said that wherever a Master has been, the vibration of his consciousness remains there forever. This was a statement about the benefit of pilgrimage. We have these two pictures, you know, up in our church now, of these two meditation rooms where Master was. And we go on pilgrimage to India to go be in those rooms because the vibration is there. But the way I think of it is this. You know, once, once you have a, an experience that is more meaningful to you than, than the experiences you've had before, even if it's something as simple as, you know, eating a better quality of cheese or going to a better restaurant or discovering that whole foods make you feel better or the benefit of exercise or finally having a true friend or learning to play an instrument, whatever it might be, where you have an experience that is, is more satisfying than what came before. On, on whatever level you're moving, this is more satisfying than what came before. And then what happens is that new height becomes your reference point for everything else. You know, the spaghetti is good, but not as good as what we had at the other restaurant the other night. Oh, let's just go back to the other restaurant. Let's not come here anymore. So then our lives begin to shift, not because anybody told us, but because we ourselves experience something that we keep coming back to. So in the presence of a great soul, there is a natural elevation of our own consciousness. I mean, this was my passion for being in the company of Swami Kriyananda. It was exceedingly tangible. It's when I was with him, I was a lot more awake. I, I was just a lot more awake than I was at any other time. Everything was much more interesting than it was at any other time. And it was just the most interesting thing I could ever do and the most fun thing I could ever do. So I just made my life, insofar as I was allowed to, defined by the opportunities to be in his company. It was, to me, it was like a no-brainer. Like, what else would I do? Because the opportunity was there, why wouldn't I take it? And it just became the reference point for everything. Now... If Master's just walking, passing you on the street, or you're in St. Louis and you hear one lecture, you don't, I don't know to what extent even people would be conscious of it. But nonetheless, something would enter you. You, know, some vib- you would experience and feel some vibration that would be so much more 
nourishing to the soul than anything else you'd ever experienced, that even subconsciously everything would be measured against it. That's what Edgar Cayce was saying. It just would, would give you a glimpse of where you were really trying to go. And so you would spend that all the rest of your incarnations, that's what he was implying, that it, it, would, it would be like this thought, and then you'd spend all the rest of your incarnations trying to get back to that point. And so it would be, um, it would launch you on the spiritual, could launch you on the spiritual path, could define it. When I met Swami, well, when I first found the teachings of self-realization, which was actually through the books of Vivekananda, when I was 19, I just, I seized it, like, you know, like a drowning person, just grabbed that teaching with both hands because it provided a reference point. I had, I had just been living in this Western world and there was no reference point. Everything, every truth seemed equally arbitrary because no one was really speaking to me of anything that transcended. It was just this person's point of view versus this one and this one and this one. And they all made perfect sense, but none of them had any particular reason to, to carry more weight than any of the others. But when I read Vivekananda's words, it carried weight. It was, it was revealed truth and I knew it, just intuition in past lives. But ab- after that, it became the reference point. And then, of course as I began to meditate, as I moved to Ananda, as I began to know Swami, just became the reference point for everything. And the, the, um, what do I want to say? It was, I had a lot of words come, the focus, the concentration, the sense of security, um, the motivation, the clarity, all of it, just from, you know, just from a reference point. Um, I actually, um, many of you know, I, I learned to cook. Swami taught me to learn, taught me to cook, and I cooked for him for many years. Oh, I cooked for him whenever I was with him after that, but uh, almost always. Um, I realized that my sense of what was good in cooking was completely his taste. I had no other reference point because I learned to cook in order to serve him, and so if he liked it, I made it that way. That was it. It was simple as that. Of course. He didn't like beets, and I did, and he didn't like kale, and I did. So I cooked my own food in my own way. But it was just like, it seemed like as good a reference point as any to me, is just to do what he liked. But you can see how that would, how that would work. And so when Master says that, you, you just think about, you know, all the incarnations that it takes to get to the point where your path would cross his. And then all the incarnations it takes after you cross his path once, after you're a drunk in the Bowery and you sort of stumble out of the bar and bump into him. And just, just where, where does it go from there? But this is the, um, this is the way it works. And it's, it's something that we all have to realize that when, when one gets to the point where one is given a teaching, given a teacher, given a guru, given a practice, you can't just like casually say, oh, I think I'll just turn my back on it and go and do something else. It's, it doesn't always come around again for a long time. And that's a sort of a hard thing to say when you see people 
dropping away left and right. But you, you can't just squander a blessing and then just think that there's going to be another line up there. You have to work your way back up to the point where it's clear in your mind that this is really what I'm wanting and sometimes you have to earn that again. It, it's, it's one more reason. I know Davy said once, if we don't make a, a lot of progress in this life, we have no one to blame but ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's just with all the opportunities we've been given. I love thinking about that with Master. I just like to think about... You know, Swami tells, I think it's in The Path, where he talks about um, several different situations where one woman had found a painting in a second-hand store that she really liked because she thought the face was so spiritual and she put it up on her altar and she had it for years. And then she saw Master in person and realized it was him. Another woman was sitting with her husband, this Swami tells, she was just in a restaurant. She saw Master walking down the street. She said to her husband, that's the most spiritual man I've ever seen. And then later, of course, she found him. Rajasi Janakananda, remember he was driving in his car and he saw a poster with Master's picture and he thought that that was a very interesting woman. (laughs) And he was just very intrigued by the woman in that picture. And then later he went to Master's lecture and he was listening to Master for a long time before he realized it was the same woman whose picture he had seen, but that it had stayed in his mind. Swami Kriyananda saw Autobiography of a Yogi face out on the bookshelf in 1948, and he was so drawn to the face, just tremendously drawn to the face. But then he was put off when it said dedicated to an American saint, because Swami was very cynical about America, so he put the book back. But then later when he was magically or mystically drawn to buy it, he, he was like this. And then he tells the story about being in the bookstore and some very worldly acquaintance from college comes and is just talking to him about uh, going to New York and going into advertising, making all this money. And this man's talking to him about the life he's going to have. And Swami has just found autobiography. And he talks about how he held the book clutch the book and he said in some way Yogananda and he were allies against this worldliness. I mean he he hadn't met him, he hadn't even read the book but just it was there it was his point of reference and of course there had been many previous incarnations but you know that's what we're working with once that consciousness touches us um, we have to compare everything to that And I suppose that's what gives us vairagya in the end. Because compared to that, everything else, vairagya means a disinclination for the things of this world. It's a marvelous word. It it doesn't say that you're sickened by them, but you're just disinclined. A disinclination for the things of this world. Vairagya is a wonderful quality. Um, That last letter that Swami wrote at Easter was filled with vairagya just had a very strong disinclination for this world, and two weeks later he left it. But that's what contact with the Master does, because it doesn't make this world... It doesn't make this world any different than it is, or any worse than it is. It just gives us a point of reference about our own potential, and why would I go over there when I could go over here? 
I, I was driving home earlier today and um, I, I have just, by the grace of God, I've never really liked junk food or anything like that. I just, I have a simple diet and I am very strongly inclined that way. So I saw this woman, I think it was, is there a jack-in-the-box or something like that? One of those places. She pulls out of the driveway and gets in front of me and she's, and you know, she just took this big bite of something that was wrapped in tinfoil that she'd apparently just gotten at that place. And I had a visceral reaction to it, you know, about how could she be putting that into her body? And I realized that many people find it delicious. (laughs) It's just your point of reference. No? But to me it would just be torturous to be forced to eat that. Uh, The whole time I'd just be thinking of the implications, you know. The last non-vegetarian thing I had actually was a hamburger from some place up in the hills by Stanford. And let's see, what was one of the last? And, And that night... All night long, I dreamt about the hamburger, the whole hamburger, on the bun with a little bit of lettuce, you know, and the wilted tomato, the whole thing. And it was moving through my veins. (laughs) It's still very vivid in my mind. (laughs) I never ate another one. (laughs) It was just awful. (laughs) But there's this woman just, you know, obviously I thought, well, she's just eating on her way home so she won't be hungry wherever she's going next. But once you touch into the consciousness of the Master, everything becomes different. Well, that's enough for this evening, unless anyone has a question or a comment. Okay, so we went from 282 through 288. Thank you.